This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. I started writing about local history, primarily my hometown of uh, Amsterdam, New York, many years ago. I was co-producer with Steve Dunn of a a documentary that ran on WMHT called Historic Views of the Carpet City. Amsterdam is known as the Carpet City even today. Some people still call it that, but it isn't. They don't make any carpet there. What happened to the carpets? And this is the story of that, what happened to the carpets. We've introduced kind of a cast of characters here. James Wise is the first one. James Wise, in 1955, was president of one of two major carpet manufacturers in Amsterdam, Bigelow Samford. He broke a big news story at noon on Saturday, January 29th, 1955, on WCSS Radio. People tuned in to hear this story. They knew something was up. There had been a lot of rumors going around about what was going to happen. It was generally known that Bigelow Sanford was going to consolidate its northern factories in Thompsonville, Connecticut, or in Amsterdam, New York. And the big announcement was that the decision was to locate everything in Thompsonville, Connecticut. That eliminated 1,650 jobs in Amsterdam. Most of the workers involved were producing Axminster, a pattern carpet with a cut pile. Amsterdam native Dave Northrup recalled listening to the radio report that confirmed widely circulated rumors that Bigelow Sanford was about to leave. Northrup said it cast a real pall over the city. The announcement ushered in what historian Hugh Donlan called dark days. James Wise of Bigelow Sanford cited competition from new tufted carpet mills in the South, plus competition from woven carpet plants in America and overseas as reasons for a consolidation somewhere. Business was not good, in other words. Um, in those in that day, and I believe to to this day, there are two ways to make carpets: one by weaving them, the other by tufting them. Weaving was what they did in Amsterdam. Uh, people who uh, commanded the looms, if you will, or was in sh- the person in charge of a loom, uh, was a weaver. And there are a lot of weavers in Amsterdam. My father was one of the one of the weavers. But a uh, way to make carpet that developed, I believe, in the 1940s was called tufting and kind of has taken over the industry today. I think the tufted carpet accounts for over 90% of the carpets made. You, In the tufting process, you push yarn through a backing, uh, which I believe could even be plastic. But there never was a tufted carpet mill in Amsterdam. They were all weaving mills. Be that as it may, local lore has held that, in a sense, as local lore often does, that the fix was in, that... The, you know, before they made the announcement, people said, oh, Bigelow Sanford's is going to pick Thompsonville because the local Sanford family, they had their own carpet mill in Amsterdam called Sanford & Sons. When they merged with Bigelow Hartford of New England in 1929, the ultimate control, uh, the local lore has it, really uh, passed over to the people in, in Connecticut. After the announcement that Bigelow Sanford was going to leave, I believe the next week, uh, 
New York Governor Averill Harriman, maybe a day late and a dollar short, <clears throat> publicly pressured a man, uh, Stephen Laddie Sanford, the company's largest stockholder. He was the grandson of Stephen's, another Stephen Sanford, who really was one that built up uh, the Sanford carpet mill to begin with, and he was the son of John Sanford. But Stephen Laddie Sanford <clears throat> didn't live in Amsterdam anymore. He was probably better known as a polo player or former polo player and, and horseman and uh, kind of a celebrity and member of the upper crust uh, than he was a carpet maker. But he was a Sanford and he was I, the company's largest stockholder. So Governor Harriman said, what are you going to do for us? What are you going to do for your hometown? <clears throat> but Sanford, uh, living in Florida, told reporters, Conditions in the carpet industry are very bad, making it necessary for us to cut down on our overhead. Now, local leaders had prepared for the possibility of Bigelow Sanford departing in 1955. They had a community drive that raised $300,000. Land was purchased for an industrial park on Edson Street, which was built, and work began on a new factory building. They offered the factory building to Bigelow Sanford to no avail. The president of the Amsterdam Chamber of Commerce then, Carl Kempf, told the Daily Gazette unsuccessful efforts had been made to get Bigelow Sanford to merge with Amsterdam's other major rug maker, Mohawk Mills. Kemp said such a merger would have been of obvious benefit to Bigelow Sanford stockholders. Kemp said the move to Connecticut was, quote, an injustice both to Amsterdam and to the company's stockholders. Fred Krokenberger of the Amsterdam Textile Workers Union said his members, basically he's saying that they've been, they've been good uh, to, the, to management. They'd filed only four union grievances in four years, while workers in Thompsonville had participated in 17 work stoppages in two years, but the company decided to relocate or to consolidate in Connecticut. Some said the move was engineered by Connecticut Governor Abraham Ribicoff, who met with Bigelow Sanford executives in New York City in December of 1954. In Thompsonville, a section of the Connecticut town of Enfield, the weekend it was announced that the consolidation would be in Thompsonville, prayers of thanksgiving were offered at Sunday church services. Theodore Mazazik, president of the Textile Workers Union in Thompsonville, was pleased for his workers and community, but added, quote, We feel sorry for the people of Amsterdam, and our sincere sympathy is with them. In October of that year, October 1955, over two million square feet of Bigelow Sanford factory space, divided into 21 parcels, was offered for sale at an Amsterdam auction along with company houses and vacant lots. Historian Donlan said property assessed at $5 million brought total bids of only $300,000. In 1956, Amsterdam's remaining carpet plant, Mohawk Carpet Mills, merged with Alexander Smith, a rug manufacturer that was based in Yonkers, New York. The new company was called Mohasco. So after Bigelow Sanford moved out of Amsterdam, for a while, management jobs 
moving to Amsterdam from Yonkers and Alexander Smith helped boost Amsterdam's troubled economy. But gradually, Mohasco started moving manufacturing south, building new tufted carpet mills in the Carolinas and especially in Georgia. Labor was cheaper. Land and tax breaks were plentiful in the southern states. By 1968, carpet manufacturing ended in Amsterdam, 1968. But the corporate offices of Mohasco stayed for almost two more decades. The last tie with the Mohawk Mohasco founding family in Amsterdam was broken when Herbert Shuttleworth II retired as company president in 1980. The corporate offices left Amsterdam in 1987. Switching over to Thompsonville, in 1955, Thompsonville merchant Frank Tekarsik happily told a reporter he hoped Bigelow Sanford would stay 125 years in Connecticut. However, by 1971, the company had closed the Thompsonville moves, uh, the Thompsonville mills, and moved to southern states. The Historian's Podcast continues. I'm Bob Cudmore, and we welcome Dave Green to the podcast. How you doing, Dave? I am just fine, Bob. Well, I think it's kind of, uh, I don't know, ironic. You've heard this tale uh, about uh, the end of the Carpet City days in Amsterdam. There were these two cities that both wanted to be the home of Bigelow Sanford Carpet. Amsterdam lost, but uh, Thompsonville, Connecticut won, but... Eventually, I guess you could say they both lost, and that the mills moved out of Thompsonville also. They all went to Georgia, you say? Yeah, Georgia or the South. And the uh, a further irony is, and I haven't looked this up recently, but the carpet manufacturing is still based in Georgia uh, now, but much of the manufacturing, I believe, has moved offshore. And when they say that they're based in Georgia, the offices, it's kind of like the way Amsterdam was after they stopped making the carpet. They still had the offices of the carpet company, but that's the uh, the case down in Georgia. It's, um, it's just one of those things. Uh, it's a common story in terms of the um, industrial north uh, and the northeast and so forth. I know you're from uh, Syracuse. Were there stories like that up there, mills moving out, going somewhere else? Yeah, in their particular—and by the way, I think the word you were looking for may have been the remnants of the carpet industry. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, the remnants. I guess. Yeah, Yeah, up in in central New York, the big loss back then was General Motors. Really? And also, in these industrial towns—I know this was the case in Amsterdam, and I I lived in Pittsfield for maybe— 10, 10, 12 years of my life, Pittsfield, Mass., there was similar talk over there. In Amsterdam, the talk was, well, you know, the carpet mills kept whoever out of here, uh, kept General Motors. They wanted to build a big Studebaker plant. For the, and, and the same thing was said in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, but GE was the big one. I, you know, GE wouldn't let uh, DuPont come in or something like that. And this continues today, Bob. Yes, it does. And now the northern places have learned from the southern places because uh, one of the reasons uh, Big Old Samford and Mohawk uh, moved their carpet mills down south, yes, the labor was cheaper and all that, and yes, they had land to build uh, their new mills and so on, but they also got, got goodies. 
know, the, the uh, state of Georgia presumably gave him something, or, or North or South Carolina. And this is what happens now. I mean, when Global Foundries moved into the Capital District, I believe they got more than a little bit of kind of tax breaks. Yeah, the only thing people today do is just add the finishing touch to it and say, I wonder when they'll move. <laughs> That's true. Well, I guess nothing is permanent. Shouldn't laugh about it, but... Um, and I know my own personal story with the end of the carpet industry. Both of my parents worked for the carpet mills. My mother worked in the office, and my father was a weaver. And he was a weaver right up until 1968, or he was in uh, in the production side, in the on the union side, which was when um, Mohawk, Mohasco stopped making carpets. But you know, obviously they saw the writing on the wall. The, they first brought in trying to compete with these tufted um, machines, they brought in speed looms, which my father said were very hard to operate, but they were operating them. And I believe it was in 1968 that he finally was laid off, and he um, was able to keep going. The math is confusing me, but at some point he was able to um, keep working until he was about 62, and then he only had maybe a year or so to go before he could collect Social Security then. Maybe it was he could be 61. And to his credit, you know, he never had finished high school. He went back and got his high school diploma. This, this scenario has not changed. No, no. But my mom, she, because they kept the Mohawk, Mohasco offices there, she kept working, I think, until sort of a normal retirement because they uh, didn't close the offices till the sort of the mid to late 80s, and she, uh, you know, just retired. But, that, of course, that wasn't true for, you know, a lot of people, and, and uh, a lot of people, in fact, a number of people went to Connecticut. Uh, but, of course, the Connecticut, and with the Bigelow Sanford, didn't last that long either. Um, well, although, I guess that's all relatively speaking, from 1955, and I think, to 1971s when... Uh, Bigelow Sanford moved out of uh, of Connecticut. This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We need your help to keep our program in operation. We have a fun drive underway, a GoFundMe campaign. We're not doing very well uh, as we record this, and we certainly would appreciate any uh, donation that you can make to GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2018. If you'd rather not give online, uh, using your credit card, you could donate by check, make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to uh, Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And now on the Historian's Podcast, a, a different story. To credit uh, Norm Bolin of the Fort Plain Museum and one of the leading uh, advocates or people that put together the annual conference on the American Revolution uh, in the Mohawk Valley, um, which is usually held at Fulton Montgomery uh, Community College. Norm Bolin and Brian Mack do that. And I must say, Norm gave me some information, which I believe he may have uh, created, or it was created by the folks at the Dutch Reformed Church of Stone Arabia, about that particular building and uh, stories involving Stone Arabia 
and the American Revolution. Uh, so with thanks to Norm and to the Dutch Reformed Church of Stone Arabia uh, and the Battle of Stone Arabia Visitors Center, here is that uh, information. The agricultural community of Stone Arabia, and the one thing I'm not going to be able to tell you in this particular podcast is where that unusual name came from. It's a whole other story. It's like uh, the story of where Tribes Hill got its name, but it's called Stone Arabia. It's a rural part of uh, Montgomery County in the Mohawk Valley. And that agricultural community was founded in 1723 when German Palatine immigrants bought the Stone Arabia patent and began settlement. By 1774, the 50-year-old settlement was well-established, producing major crops of wheat, which could be uh, shipped uh, down the Mohawk River to metropolitan markets. The Palatines were very early supporters of the independence movement, expressing their views in an August 1774 document known as the Stone Arabia Resolves. The small group of rebels penned their support for the citizens of Boston at the tavern of Adam Lauks, located about a mile west of the Dutch Reformed Church on Stone Arabia Road. The historic document condemned British taxation and the blockading of the Port of Boston. The Palatine Committee quickly morphed into a district-wide Tryon County Committee of Safety, which continued to meet and organize the new revolutionary government uh, in that county, which was called Tryon County then. It's Montgomery County today. In April of 1777, the committee gave orders to build a fort under the direction of Isaac Paris Esquire, the committee's chairman. The fort was located just up the road on the highest ground overlooking Stone Arabia. It was garrisoned on and off by Continental troops and local Tryon County militia came to be known as Fort Paris. On October 19, 1780, Sir John Johnson led a British army force onto the heights of Stone Arabia to burn farms and fields in an effort to cut off the much-needed wheat supply for George Washington's army, which was located on the Lower Hudson. 1780, we're now uh, into the Revolutionary War. Berkshire, Massachusetts' Lewis, stationed at nearby Forts Paris and Kaiser, marched out under command of militia colonel John Brown to meet the threat. These were soldiers from uh, Berkshire County over in, uh, in New England, and they were there to help defend the Stone Arabia area, which was under attack by uh, John Johnson. And their commander, the, the rebel commander, if you will, the patriot commander, was militia colonel John Brown. The Americans were outnumbered nearly three to one, and Colonel Brown was shot from his horse early in the engagement. As a result, his men were forced to withdraw and a disorganized fighting retreat ensued. Many were run down and killed by the enemy. Many more returned to the safety of Fort Paris, where the enemy began a brief siege, pouring fire into the fort. The Americans, being low on cannon shot, broke iron stove plates into pieces and fired on the enemy, which discouraged any attempt to storm the fort. 
Over the years, many of the stove pieces have been recovered from the fields around the Fort Paris site and can be found on exhibit at the Fort Plain Museum. While the Americans remained bottled up at Fort Paris, parties of raiders spread out across Stone Arabia, burning buildings, tools, and crops. They destroyed over a 100,000 bushels of wheat, much-needed grain that would have helped to feed Washington's men. The church that we're talking about, which is the Dutch Reformed Church of Stone Arabia, and the nearby German Lutheran Church were both burned by members of the King's Royal Regiment, also known as the KRR. The church was rebuilt uh, shortly after the Revolution Revolutionary War ended. It was rebuilt in 1788. In the 1970s, a local Stone Arabia resident, Willis Barshide, found the button of a KRR uniform not far from the Lutheran church, likely lost from the soldier's uniform as he was setting fire to the church on the day of the battle. The earliest records of the congregation of this Dutch Reformed Church, date to 1743. Originally, the German Lutherans shared a church with their Dutch Reformed neighbors until 1733, when the lot was divided and the Dutch parishioners relocated across the creek to build their own wood-frame church. After the war, the church was rebuilt with stone at a cost of over $3,000. The building originally had two entrances. A side entrance, facing Route 10, was removed in 1840 during a remodeling of the church. No sign of it remains today. The interior was originally painted white with white enclosed pews. Reverend Benjamin Westfall, instrumental in an early remodeling of the church, is buried under the altar. Early in the 20th century, the magnificent arched ceiling was blocked from view for the practical purpose of better heating. It was getting kind of cold in the church. Some veterans of the Stone Arabia battle are buried at the adjacent Dutch Reformed Church cemetery, including the fallen Colonel John Brown of Massachusetts. Brown was a true hero of the American Revolution. He graduated from Yale in 1771, By 1772, he was practicing law in what was called Tryon County. It's now Montgomery County. By 1773, with the start of political upheaval, he'd returned home to Massachusetts, where he took up the cause of American liberty. In May 1775, Brown was with Ethan Allen when the Americans seized Fort Ticonderoga. It was Brown himself who rode directly from the fort to Philadelphia to inform the Continental Congress there of the fort's seizure. Late in 1775, he took part in the American mission to capture Quebec. Brown was subordinate to Benedict Arnold, and fierce disagreements marked their time together there. Colonel Brown disapproved of Arnold's actions, especially where money was concerned, and condemned Arnold vocally to Washington and the Congress, insisting that Arnold was not to be trusted. When no action was taken against Arnold, Colonel Brown resigned his commission in protest. The colonel returned to his home in Berkshire, Massachusetts, where he took command of a local militia regiment. 
1780, though, the severe manpower shortage made it impossible to defend the western Mohawk frontier, and Brown's militia was sent to the Mohawk Valley to aid in its defense, and it's an effort in which he gave his life. A monument to Colonel John Brown's sacrifice was uh, placed in Stone Arabia by his son in 1836. It still stands near the rear of the cemetery and is a reminder of the heroes who fought for this nation in the American Revolution. Efforts are now underway to restore the Dutch Reformed Church to its original 1788 look. This is Bob Cudmore, and the Historian's Podcast continues with a story about Amsterdam, New York's fighting tradition. Tommy Gunn's Marcelino's career as a mixed martial arts fighter and promoter is the latest story in Amsterdam's long fighting tradition. New York State legalized mixed martial arts in 2017, and Marcelino won about at Madison Square Garden. Not his first a mixed martial arts fight, but his other fights he had to uh, t- took place in other jurisdictions because of the ban in New York State. Tommy Marcelino's paternal grandfather, Tony, and Tony's brother, Frank, were well-known on the local Amsterdam boxing scene. Many of Amsterdam's pugilists were Italian-American. Sammy and Jimmy Pep, who operated a popular West Main Street restaurant, trained fighters at the Mount Carmel Athletic Club in the basement of the former church building on the south side. Jojo Zeno had training quarters at his ringside athletic club on East Main Street in Amsterdam. Former world heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano was 35 when he visited Amsterdam for two public appearances in 1958. A police-escorted convoy took the champ to the Tryon Theater on East Main Street, where a few hundred excited youngsters asked questions and posed for photographs. That night, Marciano spoke at a dinner sponsored by the St. Michael's Church Holy Name Society at and was held at St. John's Hall on Park Hill, now the local Elks Lodge. City Mayor Thomas Gregg talked of his own boxing exploits. Gregg said in his last fight he was knocked out of the ring without even touching the ropes. Also on hand was former boxer Bob Pastor, then living in Saratoga Springs, who lost two bouts to Joe Lewis in the 1930s. Among local boxers attending Marciano's talk were Frank Marcelino, the great-uncle or grand-uncle of uh, Tommy Gunn's Marcelino. Also in uh, the banquet for uh, Marciano was Sailor Baron, Measles Rocco, Pinky Palmer, and John Duke Duchesse, the father of city development director and former mayor John Duchesse Jr., Duchesse Sr. won an early televised fight on WRGB in Schenectady in 1942. The former mayor's uncle, Peter Duchesse, who also used the nickname Duke on the boxing scene, for many years, Pete Duchesse operated a store specializing in imported foods from Italy and elsewhere. Sailor Baron at one time headed the Usher Corps at the Rialto Theater, on Market Street, 
according to historian Hugh Donlin, who said Barron's ring expertise enabled him to administer what he called fistic anesthesia to potential troublemakers, so quietly there was no awareness of the operation by most patrons. Boxing was so popular in Amsterdam, 8,000 fans attended the city playground championship at Lynch School Fields in the 1930s. One of the many bouts held behind Luigi Lanzi's tavern on the south side, the press of the crowd collapsed a wooden fence around the arena. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.